Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Italian American podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping Italian Americans learn about their heritage. We talk to experts, authors, and everyday Italian Americans on all things Italian from traditions, culture, food, genealogy, travel, and more. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and I have with me my co-host, Dolores Alfieri. And in today's episode, we're going to be chatting with a two-time world champion boxer, Paulie Malignaggi, who I had the opportunity to meet at the National Italian American Gala just recently. We're going to dive into some really interesting background that he had as far as growing up, not the traditional Italian-American way. Dolores, how are you doing today? Doing well, Anthony. Yeah, uh, Paulie was a great guest. Really sharp guy. I thought he had some terrific insights. Yet another one of those conversations where we could have talked for another two hours. We easily could have talked for two more hours. Yeah. In addition to Paulie, also in our Italian-American story segment at the end of the show, I had a conversation with Charlie Scalise that you'll hear. His daughter, Krista, is one of our listeners. She reaches out to us often. We also got to meet her at a conference, and she, she hooked us up with her father, who's a, who's a really nice guy. He did have a, a small role in The Sopranos and some other shows, but he gave some really great memories of the past and a touching story about his parents who are from Italy. So, Anthony, before you introduce Pauly, just want to let everyone know that we are going to launch our uh, newest initiative, which is The New Neighborhood, A Place for Italian-Americans. So if you're not on our mailing list, please consider connecting with us via email. It's super easy. Just go to our website, italianamericanexperience.com, and you can click on the Join Us tab. And that way, not only will you know when new episodes are coming out, but you'll know when this new initiative is actually launched. What we're doing with the new neighborhood is basically responding to a lot of the letters and messages we've received from all of you asking for a place where you can connect with one another and maybe connect with our guests as well. So in the new neighborhood, it's going to be a private members only group where we are going to just take what we do here on the podcast to a new dimension. Basically, it's just another part of deepening the Italian-American experience. So connect with us via email. We'll tell you more about it, and you can be one of the first people to join the neighborhood. We get emails from a lot of our listeners on really amazing stories, topics. Sometimes we get comments on the blog, and I think the new neighborhood is going to be an opportunity for those random correspondence to go into one focus group so that if you're going to send us a touching email, some of our other like really passionate listeners can talk to you about that and connect with you on those points. You know, we're trying to, we're trying to take this Italian American traditions and heritage and give you this close knit community that you can continue to talk about it, pass it on. Exactly. All right. Before I introduce our guest for the episode, we'd like to offer a brief word from our sponsor, the National Italian American Foundation. I'm John Viola, president of the National Italian American Foundation, proud supporters of the Italian American podcast. 
At NEF, we see ourselves as the leaders of the Italian-American community, and we work hard to protect our great heritage, to promote the Italian language, to build stronger ties between Italy and the United States, and to serve as your voice in our nation's capital. Most importantly, with over a million dollars a year in scholarships and grants, our work provides young Italian-Americans help in earning a solid education and becoming future leaders for our community. To find out more about how your support serves the community, visit us online at www.niaf.org and become a part of the NIAF family. All right, now I'd like to introduce our guest for today's episode. Paul Pauli Malignaggi is a former two-weight world champion who currently works as a commentator. He held the IBF Junior welterweight title from 2007 to 2008 and the WBA welterweight title from 2012 to 2013. On March 6, 2017, Malignaggi officially announced his retirement from boxing at the age of 36. He finished his career with 44 professional fights, winning 36 with seven inside the distance and eight losses. All right, Dolores, take us into this one with a quote. We picked this quote because, as we'll talk about, Paulie gets into how boxing is so much more than a physical sport. It's a mental one. This quote is from famous boxer Jack Dempsey. A champion is someone who gets up when he can't. All right, now we'd like to welcome Paulie Malignaggi to the Italian-American podcast. Paulie is a former professional boxer. He's a two-weight world champion, and Paulie, we're thrilled to have you. Welcome to the Italian-American podcast. No, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Hi, Paulie. Paulie, where are you right now? Are you in New York? or? Uh, I'm actually in New Jersey. I'm visiting my mother. So, uh, oh, my mother, very nice. That's a good my Italian mother is in New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. So, Paulie, we start every show by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about their Italian-American upbringing, their family mm-hmm. and such like. I'm actually born in the U.S., but my family moved back to Italy. And then when my parents decided to come back in uh, late 1986, so I'm born in late, eight, in late 1980, we moved back to Italy in the spring, early summer, 81, and we stayed there until 86. We would visit at times in the summer and whatnot. We went back and forth a few times, but... Mainly were in Italy until 1986, and then uh, I, when I got back to the States in late 1986, you know, that's when I kind of got the whole experience of, of, of the Italian-American. And at the time, Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, where I lived, was uh, predominantly very, very Italian-American. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people were Italian immigrants or children of Italian immigrants and whatnot. Matter of fact, by the time we moved back, I had a little brother as well. You know, my little brother was born in 1983, and he was actually born in, in Italy while we lived there, so. It was uh, me, my brother, my mom, my dad went back to Italy. You know, they uh, the manager kind of falling apart. You know, everybody wants to talk about. You know, there's obviously struggles and whatnot when you come to a new country. It obviously is part of it. But I also remember you know, the neighborhood being very Italian. You know, something that is not there anymore. You know, is that when I stay in the neighborhood, I love my neighborhood. There's a lot of nostalgia to Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, but compared to what it was when I was a kid, a lot has changed as far as the Italian-American culture, the Italian-American community. When I was a kid, I mean, there was a lot of Italian-speaking people in the neighborhood. There was, uh, you know, the, the, a lot of Italian pride, a lot more block parties, you know, which was, I think it was a thing that the Italians had brought. Because honestly, I don't see block parties in any other neighborhood besides Italian neighborhoods, you know. I think we bring that kind of stuff out. Obviously, we do love a good party. Like, we do. We do. We had uh, we had this <laughs> thing, you know, that's still there. But of course, even anything that is in the neighborhood, it's, it's fun still. Don't get me wrong. I mean, like I said, I have a lot of nostalgia, but 
a lot of the things that uh, you go through, your experience as, as a kid, they change. And the strange thing and the moment when it changes is you don't realize it's going to change. You know, when you're a kid, you realize, like, you know, they tell me, like, when I was a kid, I remember, you know, oh, you remember, we remember when Flatbush was all Italian. Or we remember when Canarsi was all Italian. Or remember when whatever neighborhood was all Italian. And, and I remember thinking, like, yeah, I guess it was all Italian at one time. It's not anymore, you know. But you don't actually think it's going to happen to your neighborhood, too. You know, you don't realize that everything changes. Time changes regardless for everyone. So, you know, in the moment, you just kind of think, like, eh, you know, this is always going to be Italian. And it's not. It wasn't, and it's not. I appreciate whatever's left of it. Like I said, the nostalgia factor is always there. And I'm always going to have a, there's always going to be a special place in my heart for Bensonhurst. But of course, things do change. So, Paulie, just so our listeners know, so when you were born and you went back to Italy, you were actually in Sicily, correct? Yeah, I was in Sicily. My family is from Siracusa in Sicily. My mother's born there. My father's born in uh, Noto. My mom's whole side of the, not Noto's not too far from Siracusa, but my mom's whole side of the family is from Siracusa. All my uncles were born there on my mom's side. My grandparents, uh, you know, the generation, they go back all the way back to Siracusa, you know. So I still go back a lot, actually. My father still lives, you know, in Sicily. And a lot of times in the summer, I try to go every summer. I'm, I'm, making, I'm currently making plans to go back. Yeah, I speak both Italian and Sicilian. I'll tell you how I kept the language because a lot of my Italian-American friends do not speak Italian or the ones that do speak like a busted dialect from whatever region they're from, you know, and it's not even close, like busted. And I'll tell you how I kept it. When I moved here from Italy, I did not speak English. I moved here, I was almost six years old, and I did not speak English. So, you know, I had to obviously learn in school and whatnot. My mother knew that if I didn't speak Italian at home, I was never going to use a language again, and I would forget the language, you know? So my mother, while the rest of the family, my grandparents, my uncles, everybody spoke Sicilian in the house, I was only allowed to speak Italian. So even if they spoke to me in Sicilian, which everybody did, I mean, I, I would respond in Italian. You know, that was the rule. I had to talk in Italian. And looking back, I mean, it was probably the best thing for me because uh, otherwise I would have definitely forgotten the language. There was no other way I was going to use the language at the time. You know, now it's funny because I'm appreciative of it because I've gotten to do so many Italian language interviews and whatnot, mainly for my boxing career and whatnot. And if I didn't have that kind of ace in my sleeve, uh, I don't think I would have gotten the respect I get even, even from Italy for my boxing career. That's a great point. Anthony, isn't that where your family's from, Syracuse? Yeah, Syracuse, yeah. We met the other night at the NIA, Gallipoli and I, and we talked a little bit about that. Like, I was in Syracuse this summer. We're literally Paisani, you know? Yeah, that's right. We probably are. I mean, it's, that's how small it is. When I went to Syracuse this summer, we rented, like, an Airbnb apartment, and the guys that showed up to let us in, you know, the guys that own the apartment, they started asking me questions like, who's your family? What's their name? And I told them, and then he, the guy's talking really fast, and the other guy translates for me. He's like, he just said that he's related to you, too. <laughs> yeah. Like the guy who rented the house to us. A lot of, through the generations, I think a lot of more people are related there than they think. I mean, when I go back to, for one thing, my last name is actually more common, you know. And my father tells me, oh, yeah, but those aren't relatives. Those are relatives. But those guys aren't relatives. I think that in reality, I think they're all relatives at a certain point. I mean, it kind of falls apart through the generations, you know. Like cousins become right. distant cousins and whatnot. The more kids the generation has is. My last name is not a very common one, but over there, in my region, I've seen several people with my last name. Yeah, and like my family there, the Pagliaro is the one name, and they're farmers, and they make honey and all this stuff that like is sold locally, so kind of like everybody knew them, so I could just like walk around and tell people, which was cool. That's the fun part, man. You know, the, all the stuff that's made locally in the morning, you go to, we call it just selling Apodia, you know, and it's like, uh, it's like basically the market, you know, and everybody's competing for, <laughs> for you to buy their, their products or whatnot. You go there, there's a lot of yelling, a lot of competition, but it's, it's the best. 
I mean, they got the brioche with the ice cream that they wanted me to try in the morning, which is like, uh. And uh, sometimes you get the fresh fish to catch that was caught that morning. You know, one thing about Sicilian culture is the menu, the Sicilian uh, cuisine is, is very fish-oriented. You know, it's an island, obviously. I think any island in the world is going to be a fish-oriented and whatnot. You get to the, the, the market early, you get, you get the fresh catch, the fresh fish. Right on the water, yeah. Yeah, I mean, stuff like that. There's certain things that when I'm there, I'm, I just kind of take in the deep breath and like, wow, I'm here. You know, mm-hmm. I'm back. You know, there's certain things yeah. you're just not going to get anywhere else. So, Paul, you came back here. You were like around six years old. You got back to Brooklyn, and I'm, I'm guessing, you know, you started into school. You mentioned like your father had gone back to Sicily again. So how was that? What do you remember from that? I mean, it must have been a little bit of a difficult of a transition for you with everything going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely different. I mean, first of all, you start to see kids that are different from you, but there's also a lot of people that were, um, you know, also immigrants. So there was a lot of Italian immigrants, uh, kids of Italian uh, from Italian families. First time in my life, I'm really seeing all kinds of different people. You know what I mean? There's people from Puerto Rico. There's uh, people from, uh, I remember, uh, Yugoslavia. I had, we had a couple of Yugoslavia, which doesn't even exist anymore, actually, you know, but at the time, you know, it was a couple of members from Yugoslavia were in my uh, class. It was a, a bigger breadbasket, so to speak, of cultures than I'd say that there is today. I don't see as much uh, diversity today as, as as I did back then. I'm sure it was difficult, you know, sure it was difficult, you know, so you're trying to fit in, you're trying to get in where you fit in, you know. You're not exactly like your Italian-American peers because they're more familiar with the language and the culture. You're still trying to learn it and whatnot. You're just trying to learn it and whatnot. But you start to adapt and you start to get in there, you know. Obviously, when there's a lot of different cultures, sometimes, you know, there's differences and whatnot. But at the end of the day, you do your best to adapt. And uh, as the years go by, you begin to understand, you know, this is a country of different cultures and you accept diversity and uh, you try to uh, be a part of the uh, and appreciate all the different diversity and the cultures that are there. You're in Brooklyn now. You're obviously going to school. These are your younger years. And I know as Italians, Italian, Italian, American, either way, it's important having like, you know, obviously now your father's not there. So I guess that would be a little bit more difficult for you. So I want to get to, you know, your boxing career, but I want to, I think we both kind of want to understand in between that. So like, how was it going through school and getting adjusted? Your father's back in Italy. How did you deal with that, basically? I mean, there was problems, obviously, even at home, you know, my father being back in Italy, we were living with my grandparents at first, and we ended up getting our, our own little apartment and whatnot. The best thing about being that age, I'll tell you where it is, you don't realize the problems that are going on at home, even if they're going on. My grandparents alone, my mother did a good job of really not really like deflecting off the a lot of the home problems we had. I was a happy kid at that time. You know what I'm saying? Like the unhappiness came later on once I was in my teen years and then certain other things happened, you know, but I was at you catch me at seven, eight, nine years old, you know, whatever. I was a pretty happy kid, you know, I didn't realize the problems that were going on at home, you know. Italians are always yelling anyway, you know, arguing anyway. Even <laughs> if there was arguing at home and, and yelling at home, I, I didn't realize the depth of the problem. If there was a problem. For me, like, I have really fun memories of those years. It was cool. Obviously, like I said, you're working on the diversity of school, and there's kids that are different from you, and then there's kids that are the same as you. But, you know, I remember it was a fun time. There was a family-oriented culture around the neighborhood. There was a family-oriented culture around my class. You're kids from different areas, but you're kind of getting to know this new, different world, all of you together. You know, some kids that are actually from Brooklyn, some kids that are coming from another country, some kids that are coming from Italy like me, you know, like, it's we're, all, we're experiencing this new world. I really am convinced that things like this, they're not as common nowadays because not as many people are, are moving in and out of the country as I think they used to at that age or whatnot. Your mom and your grandparents obviously did a really good job when you were in that younger period based on all the transition you had to deal with. So now you're getting older, you get to your teen years. How's that going? 
things changed a little bit. I mean, my mom got remarried, and there was a little bit of issues with that at home. I probably could have used my father's presence or the presence of a father figure in my house. When my mom got remarried, we ended up moving to New Jersey, so I lost even the figure of my grandfather in the house. You know, my grandfather, nutty as he is, is a really figure as a man. I didn't understand that until I was older. You know, he's a good example as a man, you know, uh, working hard, uh, putting the family first, acting, think, acting out things on principle because you do things correctly, you know, and then you go to work correctly whether you feel good or not. You do certain things correctly whether you feel good or not. You take care of the people you love whether you feel good or not, you know. These are things that I learned later on from watching my grandfather when I moved back home with my grandparents. But in the moment, I was kind of a, a lost cause. I didn't have, like, that male figure in my life. I was taken away out of the neighborhood. And um, really, it was a little bit difficult in New Jersey. That was where I started to have my first difficulties because all of a sudden, uh, we were in a small town, and diverse culture wasn't really accepted at that time. In the U.S., there at the time, the only diversity they were teaching you was black and white. You know, they were trying to really make sure everybody got along in that regard. But as far as immigrants and whatnot, they weren't really teaching people to accept immigrants and, and people that were different in that way. You know, and I remember all uh, sometimes it was weird because I look back at it now and I'm like, that's so stupid. But I look back at it now, like I remember like kids uh, used to make comments about the fact that I spoke Italian or the fact that my mom had an accident or all that stuff. Because all of a sudden I was thrust into a new different life and a new different culture, so to speak, than, than had been in Brooklyn where everybody was different. Everybody was from somewhere else. And right. so it was a little bit difficult and little by little. You know, I started acting out on it. Uh, I started acting out on some problems at home. And uh, to make a long story short, in that regard, I had to wind up going to live back with my grandparents. Well, I couldn't live back at home anymore, you know. When I moved back home with my grandparents in Brooklyn again, I was back in the neighborhood, back where I wanted to be and whatnot. And uh, at this point, I was still acting out to the point. I, by this point, you know, the momentum had got picked up. I was acting out to the point where I got myself thrown out of high school. And that's when I started boxing. But... Through the years, you know, uh, my grandfather was hard on me, man. I mean, my grandfather was just frustrated, you know, with uh, the way I had been behaving and whatnot. Even my youngest uncle, because my mom is the second of five kids, and my mom is the only girl, you know, so I have four uncles. She has four brothers. And my youngest uncle is only eight years older than me, so he was more like a big brother than he was an uncle, you know? And he was, like, on top of me. Like, he was getting frustrated with me and, like, being hard on me. And it's to the point when I got myself thrown out, they were like, there's no way, there's no way you're going to get yourself, continue to get yourself in trouble now that you don't have school. Either you're going to wind up hanging out in the street all the time now because you have no school. And that's kind of how the, the boxing idea came about. You know, it was a way to, it was a way to keep me uh, from continuing to get into trouble and give me a, like a haven to go to. I think they were more hopeful than anything else. I don't think they thought I was going to become a boxer. I think they were more hopeful that I, I think they were more hopeful that I have like a hobby that would keep right, me like an uh, outlet. Yeah, exactly. And an outlet and a hobby that would keep me from doing something else. Like, if you're bored of doing nothing, you're going to wind up getting yourself in trouble. You're going to figure out something right. to do with it, especially if it's already on your mind, you know. But if you're not bored and you're doing something you enjoy, whether it's an outlet for stress or not, you're also keeping yourself occupied in that moment. At that point, because the years had, had gotten so bad, I really, I had gotten to the point where I could care less. Uh, I had no consequences to fear at that point. So suddenly when I went into boxing, I liked it so much that, Suddenly, there was a consequence I had to fear, and that, that consequence would be that you, you know, I wouldn't be able to box. So it gave me a reason to kind of behave and, and uh, do what I wanted to do. But like I said, as the years went by, you know, I became even more proud of who I was. I learned more about the history of Italian American boxers and whatnot, and the fact that I was kind of in the next phase in that history mm -hmm. uh, when there was less of us in boxing, there was less of us really uh, making the sport famous like we used to in the 40s and 50s, you know, and even before that. So I kind of started to take more pride in my culture. I started to you know, mature as a person, as an individual, started understanding and appreciating my grandfather a little more, and uh, I started just appreciating, uh, just becoming a little smarter, I guess.
Polly, as you know, if there's a documentary made about you called Magic Man, and actually I watched some of it um, in preparation for today. I was thinking last night, I was thinking to myself that uh, I don't think we've ever had anybody like you on the show. And I was thinking about your family story, your parents split up, and then, you know, you kind of struggled, as you said, without a male figure. And, and even Anthony, I was like going through our past guests. I don't know that we've had anybody from a, let's say, a broken family on the show yet. I think on top of that also is a lot of the Italian-Americans, like Paulie mentioned before, they're here and they're surrounded by other Italian-Americans. So in addition to the fact, Dolores, that like Paulie said, his parents ended up splitting. Also, Paulie's coming as an Italian-American, but he really spent the first six years of his life in Italy speaking Italian, right? So it's a completely different dynamic when you're talking about an Italian-American because even though, Paul, you're born here and then you went back for six years, again, like you said, even different from the Italian-Americans. Yeah, in that regard, like I said, I mean, a lot of my Italian-American friends that I still remain in contact with, I, I speak better Italian than them. I'm actually, if I have to say, I'm the only one out of my Italian friends that actually speaks proper Italian. I can speak Sicilian as well, but I, I can speak proper Italian, and, and none of my friends, like the the use the Italian language gets out of me is not with my friends, I'll put it that way. They can't speak proper Italian. Once I moved back in with my grandparents, I started like speaking this dialect, because at 15, 16, you're not going to tell me how to speak anymore, you know? But by that point, <laughs> the Italian language had been etched and buried into my mind, you know, so that I, enough for enough of a period of time that I couldn't really lose it. It helped me later on when I started boxing and, uh, you know, I started doing, getting a lot of media attention. I started also getting media attention from the Italian media, you know? And so the fact that I could speak Italian kind of uh, made them embrace me a little bit better because Italians are not always so welcoming of Italian-Americans. They think that the, uh, the culture... Right. <laughs> yeah, they, they think that the culture has really broken off. And the biggest problem they have is two things. I mean, the two things that I've noticed through the years, the biggest problem they have is, one, they lose the language, so they don't consider them Italian. If you're really, truly proud to be Italian, you shouldn't lose the language in their eyes. And then two, they lose a lot of the things that, that Italians love, like, for example, soccer. No mm -hmm. Italian-American watches soccer. I am still of the older generation where I still keep a lot of my Italian roots. I watch a lot of soccer, even though I became a boxer. You know, soccer is actually my favorite sport. And then I speak the Italian language. So it gave them a sense of that, having something in common with me to say, oh, you know what, this guy is like one of us. You know, he's not so different. And it made them uh, embrace me. It took a little time. Because I'll admit, there was a lot of media when I spoke to them in Italy that didn't know I spoke Italian. And they said, oh, my goodness, I can't believe you speak Italian so well, you know. And because the stereotype by Italians is that Italian-Americans don't speak Italian. A lot of that embracing had to come along later on when the Italians actually got to speak to me and see that I was actually more like them than they realized. I think that's great. I mean, Anthony and I talk on the show often and even, you know, off mic about that exact thing. I mean, our show is really the Italian-American podcast. It's not about being Italian. It's not about being American. Yeah. It's about being this special, different yeah. culture that we have made as Italian-Americans. Yeah, and, 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 and yeah, exactly. You're right. And that culture is a unique culture. It's its own Absolutely. culture. It's, and like you said, it's not Italian and it's not American. It, Italian-American is actually its own culture because it, it, it very, there's a lot of differences from Italian culture and there's a lot of differences, obviously, from American culture, you know? Okay. It's kind of a mutated morph of a culture. But uh -huh. I'll tell you what, but it's great. i tell you because you have a lot of the sense of family and whatnot that you still have. You have a lot of sense of pride that you Italians still have, but at the same time, you've also kind of mixed in with the, you know, especially the teenagers and the, and the kids, is mixing with the American fashion, mixing with the Italian, exactly. American way of doing things, you know, so mingles in and morphs, but uh, 
like I said, I have fond memories. Those things, I have a lot of fond memories. And also, you know, when you watch movies of the Italian-American culture, which are the 80s and 90s and even 70s, there's a lot of movies of the Italian-American culture. And some, obviously, are organized crime, and some are, you know, there's, there's even some fun stuff like My Cousin Minnie and whatnot. That's one of my yeah. favorite movies. You begin to realize it a little bit better because you can adapt to it. I always wonder, Italian-Americans have their own culture, but I wonder if, like, an Italian watched the movie My Cousin Vinny, or a Canadian watched Italian Canadian watched the movie My Cousin Vinny, or if an Italian Australian watched the movie My Cousin Vinny, if they would get the adaptability that we get, like I right, feel like it's right. more fun for us for Italian Americans because we I know agree. the exact culture, we are that exact culture, and it's nothing like it, you know. It also makes that part of life more fun. You know, my parents came here after they got married, so I mean, I'm first generation, and we speak the language and all that, and I have relatives in Italy. But I'll be honest with people, you know, I don't feel the connection to Italians as much as I feel it to Italian-Americans. Like, I feel like yeah. Italian-Americans are my people more than I feel like yeah. Italians, in my case. But, you know, I didn't spend the first years of my life there and, and all that. But that's the truth from my perspective. I get that sense as well in a lot of ways. I do connect with these Italians. I can't more with just the Sicilians. You know, I think because I think Southern culture is also, also different than Northern culture. Northern culture is still a little bit, uh, I'd say like living in Milan is like living in Manhattan, you know, you get that yep. crew, you get that crowd, you know, it's like, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit less culturally strong, you know, like, you said, yeah, exactly. they, they, they kind of change the times a little more modern and that's obviously to be expected as a big city and whatnot, but I feel like in the South, it still holds a lot of core values and whatnot. A lot of the criticism, another criticism Italians give to Italian Americans is, you know, they don't change with the times, you know, Italian Americans yes. are raised by their parents. Their parents are from the old school generation of Italians. You go back to Italy now, things have changed just like things have changed in America. So a lot of times you go back to Italy and they say, you're like the old generation of us, because that's all you know. You don't know the modern Italian generation. You weren't raised there. You were raised in America. You know, you know the antique Italian version. Whether yep. it's dialects, whether it's whether it's uh, the way you behave, whether it's uh, the things you do, jokes you tell, there's different things. We're in the capsule of the immigrants that came over, and that. That's but I tell you right. what, my Italian friends, because now I go back a lot more, and I have, I have friends down in Sicily and whatnot. You know, they've learned to embrace it, and, they, and again, I feel like it's the generation where you're starting to embrace a little, a lot more of the mm -hmm. of, of the past, and a lot more of, the, of that diversification than people used to. Now I go back, they love it. You know, they love that I bring up certain things that they don't talk about anymore. They, that's they right. love that. Yep. Yeah, they've learned to love it. So even back then, they've learned to love it a little bit. But again, they've only learned to love it because I'm able to communicate that with them. I still speak Italian, you know? Like, if, yeah. I'm not, if you're not able to communicate with that with them, there's going to be that barrier, you know? And uh, I think the language is so important because every culture passes on their language. I see Russian kids, they speak Russian. I see uh, Chinese kids, they speak Chinese. I see Albanian kids, they speak Albanian. I think that's so important to pass on that language, to pass on the culture. And I feel like Italians are the only ones that don't do it. A lot of our, you know, grandparents and such went to be American when they got here. So they did the opposite of what your family did and wanted everybody just yeah, to speak and, English. And, and, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I suppose in the older generations, because I came, my family, my grandfather first got here in 1977. The old generations, I think before that, there was probably backlash from World War II and whatnot. Like, I think the Italians came 100 years ago to Ellis Island and were with that huge influx of immigrants that were coming from Europe and the whole rest of the world. I read things about those times. and. A piece of me loves it. I'll watch the beginning of Godfather 2 when they flash back to the yep. uh, Little Italy days. And I tell myself, like, man, what a cool time to be alive. That must have been so cool. Everybody's Italian. Even though you're in a new world, everybody's Italian. You, you feel like you never left, you know? But at the same time, I'm sure for the kids born in that generation, once World War II came, they were probably feeling a little bit out of place because, you know, Italy was on the opposite side of the war. And so I think uh, a lot of times 
maybe the there was almost a, a sense of being ashamed of passing on that language because at the time, right in that generation, there was a cultural difference. I know Japanese people were, were not looked at in a fond way during World War II, and, and a lot of Italian people were not looked at in a fond way during World War II. So I think maybe there was the, the sense of, you know, I'm in this country, maybe we need to forget the old culture, you know, especially with what the times and what was going on during the war. Yeah, a lot of this stuff that you're saying, it's funny because Dolores and I were at the National Italian American Foundation Gala last week, so were you, and it's a great event, but it's an event where there's Italian Americans and there's Italians, and... You know, there's situations, there's conversations, things that happen throughout the event. I'm like laughing already. I can't believe you're bringing this up. <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying a lot of the stuff that Paulie's saying right now, I mean, the differences between the two, I feel like there was like a micro event that was happening at the event a little bit. Like you could see the Italians talking. and Right. I'll say it for Anthony because I, I don't really care. But the basic, I'm aggravated, you know, at some point at all these events because the Italian Americans are on stage getting their awards and being honored, right? And all the Italian Americans in the room are listening and paying attention. And all the Italians are just talking to each other. Non stop. <laughs> they don't stop. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, they don't just, maybe they don't understand. I don't understand. Well, I think it's that they don't really care. And it's kind of like a dirty little secret in our community. Like, like I'm generalizing, of course. Like, you said yeah. it. I mean, the Italians don't really care too much about Italian-Americans. Yeah. And, 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 and I'll tell you uh, a lot of the smaller cultural differences, but i tell you the big thing that does not bridge the gap, that makes the gap bigger, is losing the language. Once you lose the language, the Italian from Italy respects you less. It's just they feel like you've given up on the culture, you know, and... It's the sense and the gist that I've gotten as I go back more and more through the years. If if you hold on to the language, like as I go back more and more, and obviously now everybody knows I speak Italian in their media and whatnot, there's more of an accepting and embracing feeling because you they know you speak the language. Unfortunately, the stereotype is that at the time Americans don't speak Italian. And once you lose that language, Italians will have a hard time accepting you as one of their own because how can we accept you as one of our own if we can't even communicate with you that well? I think it starts with having pride enough in, the, in your culture to pass on your language. And I believe somebody was saying that actually uh, last week at, at the gala. Uh, somebody was up, got up there and was actually mentioning that, you know, pass down the language and whatnot, talk to our kids and, and pass down the language. Because it becomes really important because if you do have pride in your culture, I think your kids, the only way they're going to be able to continue that is if they know the language. Because otherwise you have the same issue, and that is, there's nothing bridging a gap between the Italian-American culture and the Italian culture. Without the language, the respect level gets lost in the regard of, of, what, of how they view you. Let's get into boxing because we want to talk to you about boxing. So you found boxing because, you know, you were struggling with life in general and you turned to boxing kind of as an outlet. And at what point, Poli, do you start to say to yourself, I'm pretty good at this? I started realizing I was pretty good with what was happening in the gym. Before I had a uh, even an amateur fight, I saw that I was getting better than a lot of the kids in the gym. A lot of the, a lot of the, even the grown men in the gym, they would throw me in with grown men, and I was uh, getting even at 16, 17 years old, I was starting to beat them up too. Don't get me wrong, you're not beating up the whole gym at that age. Some guys are still better than you, and some guys are still beating you up too. But I was starting to develop my skills enough to where I was, you know, starting to surpass the levels of a lot of the kids my age and some of the grown men, some of the pros. If I took my lumps, I was willing to come back and get better if I got beat up. And so I realized that I had the character for it and whatnot. And then as I started competing and doing tournaments and so on and so forth, I started realizing, you know, I was winning some important tournaments. I started seeing scouts show up in my fights to, you know, give me business cards. 
they wanted to give me professional boxing contracts and whatnot. And I started realizing that, you know, a lot of people that I would see on TV were now approaching me and uh, trying to sign me as a professional, you know. And although even if I wasn't ready, I mean, this started at about the time I was 18. I started getting my first business cards from people, you know, and I started being approached by people that, you know, I knew from TV even, you know, that they wanted to sign me. And at 18, I just, I knew I didn't want to be a professional at 18. But I knew eventually I wanted to. I just felt like I needed to continue to uh, get better, uh, to mature as a fighter and as, as, and as a person, as an individual. But I think boxing helped me mature a lot as a person as well, you know, and it helped me understand life. Boxing is a metaphor for life in a lot of ways. The struggles you go through in boxing are kind of mirror the struggles you go through in life. And if you quit in boxing, you're, you're a failure, just like if you quit in life, you're a failure, you know. The lack of self-belief, there's never an excuse for it. You get into road bumps, you've got to continue to believe in yourself. And one thing is the mind. The next thing is you got to convince the body to believe in yourself, too, and actually continue to do it. You know, it's easy to say you can do you can do something and then never do it. I think boxing forces you to actually act upon your mental mindset. And uh, if you believe you can do it, you've actually got to go and do it. Uh, otherwise, you end up with busted faces, or busted lips, busted noses, you know, and whatnot. So I think it matured me as a person, but I also kept developing as a fighter. You know, when the time came, when those times started to show up, I started realizing, you know, I'm pretty good at this. I might be able to make a living. But I never deluded myself because I would see as the years went by, even early in my professional boxing career, I would see a lot of the kids that were talked about the same way I was talked about starting to fail. You know, I would see, like, my peers in my generation, a lot of the good fighters that were in the amateurs with me, they started to get knocked off. You know, they started to get beat. So, And I started to realize, wow, just because everybody heaps a bunch of praise on you, that doesn't come in the ring with you. Your opponent can yeah. care less about the praise you have heaped on you. You've still got to perform every single time of the bell rings and you fight because all the praise, all the accolades you get, if you mess up one too many times, that's it. This is all in. I started to realize that as I started coming up the ladder, a lot of my peers uh, from my generation started to get beat. They started getting knocked off. Kids that I thought might have even been better than me, kids that I thought at one time were definitely, I like, can't miss prospects, can't miss short champions and whatnot start to legitimately fall off because a lot of differences between professional and amateur boxing, mainly the biggest difference is the amount of rounds you're fighting, you know? So the fatigue factor plays a big factor. Fatigue plays a big factor in losing desire to want to continue a fight when you're exhausted in a fight and it's round seven or eight as opposed to by round three or four, the fight's over in the amateurs, you know? So I started to realize that there's a lot more involved. You have to just be a deeper thinker, be tougher in general, mentally stronger. It's full body. You got to be mentally, physically strong, right? Yeah, people think about just the fighting. It's not just the fighting. I've been in fights where I'm winning easily every round, and I'm not like round eight, nine, ten, and I'm exhausted, man, and I, like, I don't want to fight anymore. I'm like, man, and I've got to convince my mind, like, what are you doing? You stay with it. Why are you having these thoughts? Like, get these thoughts out of your head. You're winning this fight easy. Why are you making it tough on yourself? It's weird. Your mind plays tricks on you, and you have, it starts to really creep in, and you've got to fight those things off. So obviously there's been tough fights as well. Where I'm not winning every round, so that's even tougher, you know? But a lot of times, even when it looks easy, it's not easy, you know? And so, uh, again, and those, those are lessons for life, too, not just lessons for boxing. Paulie, when you won that first title, what was it? I think in 2007, you won your first championship. How did that make you feel after everything you went through? Was it like a validation or? Yeah, it's been 10 years. You imagine it? June makes 10 years I won my first championship. <laughs> uh, unbelievable. I guess. Oh, uh, no, I was watching oh. that documentary and. I was doing the math, and I'm like, oh, he's like a, a kid. You were like this 22-year-old, you know, brass, yeah. quick-moving, yeah. you know, really young man. I was thinking how what that yeah. must feel yeah, like yeah, for you, think, you to look back. And you think it's never going to end, just like oh, any young person. You think it's never going to end. You, think, you just assume, like, you're always going to feel this way, right? And suddenly, you, you know, time bends, and you don't. But it felt really good. I think the, the night I won my first world championship, there was a feeling of, uh, like, relief because – 
one of the big goals that I set for myself was to become a world champion, and I finally got there. And the relief wasn't like that I, I had questioned whether I would get there because I always believed I would get there. The relief was I had failed in my first bid to fight for a world championship the year before. So I was getting another title shot a year later, which is, doesn't come often to, that it happens that fast, you know? So I realized when I accepted the fight that if I don't win this fight, I may have to go a lot of years without getting another world title opportunity, you know, world championship shot. The relief was, man, you know, I got it this time. Because, man, if I would have failed two times in, in the span of a year, they would have written me off and it would, it would have been a long road back. But uh, also a sense of satisfaction, sense of self-worth and accomplishment, a sense of everything I'd went through before that time, it was worth it through my childhood, through my teenage years, through my young adult years. I felt like they developed the person and the man that I was to become a world champion because it's not just ability when you're fighting, as I said before, it's also you have to have a strong mind. You're fighting for 36 minutes. You know, 12 rounds is 36 minutes. It's a long time. People to, to think of fighting, they think of, you know, when you get into a fight at the nightclub or whatnot, you know, which a lot of people I'm sure have, the fight gets broken up in 30 seconds. I mean, exhaustion doesn't even come into play. And a lot of times you're exhausted even after that. So if you've had to fight for 36 minutes straight, I mean, that's, there's a, a lot of the mind has to take over, you know, and get you through it. And uh, yeah. it's a different feeling. Yeah. But, uh, but it was a um, really satisfying feeling. It seems like from everything you've told us that that fight, you know, winning that fight, it would seem like it was a lot more than a boxing match or a championship. It must have had a lot of just great feelings because of all that stuff you went through. I got into boxing and I told myself, my life's going to change with this thing. You know, once I realized I was getting pretty good at it, I said, there's no way my life's going back to where it was before. Because of this, my life's going to become different by the time this is over. When this ride ends, my life's not going to be the way it was when it started. You know, and I was determined to make that happen. Right. Well, you mentioned other Italian-American boxers, and, you know, it's there's a long line of them, and boxing has really always in this country been a way for, you know, people from certain places to get out of those places. And, you know, whether that's, like, a geographic place or an economic place or a mental place, right? Like, it's lifted people yeah. up. When I say my life wasn't going to change and I wasn't going to be back to what it was before, I, I mean, yeah, a lot of, for some people it is geographic. For me, it certainly was not geographic. One of the rare people that would still stay in the neighborhood, I still do stay in the neighborhood a lot of times because, you know, I love thinking about the old days of it, you know. For some people, it is geographic. But for me, it was more of a financial perspective, uh, a mental perspective. I had to feel like it was more of a self-worth perspective. It did the trick. And it was, like I said, it was a satisfying feeling on that night in 2007. It obviously must have been building up to that. The whole idea of boxing has been... Like you said, you went into it as one person and you were determined that you were going to come out of boxing as a different person, regardless of the actual boxing, just you as a whole, which it sounds like you did. But take us up to date to now. So you went through your career and then you got into commentating, right? You got you wanted to stay around boxing. Talk about what you've been up to lately. When I first started boxing, I thought I was going to be like the next Oscar La Jolla, the next Sugar Ray Leonard. You know, once I started to gain, uh, realize I was getting good. All people kept coming up to me and telling me, and like I said, these are the things that you can't take into the ring with you because your opponent doesn't care, but inside they still resonate, you know? And all people kept coming up to me and saying was, wow, you're so marketable. The, all you got to do is uh, become a world champion and you're just going to be a megastar, you know, because you speak three languages. I also speak Spanish. You speak three languages. You're good looking. You speak in front of the microphone. You don't hesitate. You know how to do public speaking very well at press conferences and whatnot. You're a great interview. You're personable. You you have a personality that resonates with people. Uh, you, you're a little bit wacky in your own way, which is great TV. Basically, I just kept being told that I had the whole package. And when you have the whole package, you just got to be become, become a champion. And that way, they can market that whole package. I always felt like, you know, that was what was going to happen. You know, I not realizing that 
the rest of the package has to be taken care of by a strong team. And, you know, if I get into that conversation, you know, we're going to be here forever. But regardless, I did my, I pulled off my end. I pulled off my end and I won the championship. But the marketing team and all that other stuff, that's got to be handled by other people. And unfortunately, you know, that wasn't handled in the way that I probably would have preferred, you know, because I felt like I had that star power once I was, was a world champion, but um, it, I felt like it wasn't marketed in the correct way. Luckily for me, I was able to still make money and handle myself financially to, to better my life. And then at, at a certain point in my life, I was never thinking about broadcasting. I was never thinking about commentating at all. It was never part of my dreams. It was never part of my goals, you know? People started to mention, like, you know, you're a really great interview. You ever think about commentating? And I was like, yeah, whatever. You know, first of all, I didn't, had not thought about commentating, number one. Number two, I wouldn't have even known how to go about doing it. Like, what do you ask? You know, what do you do to even try it? At a certain point, uh, I remember in 2012, right after I won my second world championship, I won my second world championship in April of 2012, and they fired one of the sports analysts from Showtime. You know, there's always an ex-boxer on the team, you know, and they, and they had gotten rid of the ex-fighter uh, uh, analyst on Showtime. And they weren't hiring. They were just, I noticed every time I would watch a broadcast, there was a different fighter analyst on. So they would bring it on like guests every week, like a different champion, you know, kind of to give the fans a treat of, you know, okay, this week we got this guy commentating with us. Okay, next week we got this guy commentating with us. In reality, what they were doing, it was a test to see who they could keep. But they didn't let you know that. So when they yeah. called my manager, they said, hey, you know, it's totally available uh, this weekend. You know, we want to, we're doing guest spots. And, you know, we think he would be great if he was a guest on this week's show. So, you know, they offered to pay me. And I remember I was in training camp. I was in Los Angeles training for a fight. And the fight was in Las Vegas, so it was a quick 40-minute flight. So I accepted the terms. I accepted the deal. And I thought it was going to be like a weekend thing. Just, you know, go there. I'm the guest this weekend. And that's when they come back to training camp and continue to prepare for my fight. But instead, I did the show. And they loved me. They fell in love with me instantly. The show, we went off the air. The production people came out of the truck from outside the arena. They walked into the arena. And literally, they said, so uh, when are you going to stop boxing and come work for us? I was just blown away because it had never, it literally just fell into my lap. I, people always ask this question, like, how did it come about? It didn't come about. It just happened. It was the weirdest thing in the world. Like, it came from, like, a different angle because I had never given myself this as a goal. This was never my goal. It was never even something right. I dreamed like, about. Like, you this couldn't have even something... planned it. Yeah, like this was never something it. I even cared yeah. about. You know, I, yeah, yeah. there's never, I wanted, I lived and thrived for the roar of the arena, you know, the, the big crowds and what. I thrived for that. I didn't thrive for, to be the guy ringside talking about it. You know what I'm saying? It, mm -hmm. it was just never never even entered my mind but of course it was fun i'm a boxing fan as well as a boxer so the chance to be at all these big fights ringside and communicating what's going on you know started to really appeal to me and i really like it in the years since i've been doing it because i like to give fans a perspective of the fight to understand it through my eyes i feel like if i can give you a perspective to watch the fight through my eyes you may understand it a little bit better and if you understand the fight a little bit better you probably enjoy it a little bit more you know it's, it's more than just two guys beating each other up there's a tactical idea to each to both guys and what they're trying to do and the traps they're trying to set or whatnot so if i can bring that out to people i feel like maybe they'll enjoy it a little bit better so i enjoy what i do and uh, literally just ended up happening. And uh, I hope it continues on for a while because now I've retired from boxing. So this is what I got. And it's been fun. So that's where you're at right now. You're doing commentating. It sounds like you're enjoying it. What are your plans from here? Do you have any other plans or goals that you want to work towards in your career? Are you focused on the commentating? Yeah, I mean, mainly I'm focused on commentating. You know, I've been offered, because uh, now, you know, people obviously understand that I'm better than a lot of athletes on the microphone and, and I'm able to speak and whatnot. So now, obviously, that's the cat's out of the bag with that. I've been offered to uh, have, like, sports talk radio shows and whatnot on the radio. 
I have turned that down at the moment because I feel like it's going to be like a nine to five. Even if I say like, you know, sports talk radio is like three, four hours a day. Right. I mean, and a lot of people would love to do that. I mean, three, four hours a day, you, you know, you get in the studio and you talk, you have your partner, you guys talk about all the sports of the day and whatnot. Maybe I'm like a sports radio station. But the thing about having a daily schedule is it prevents me from being able to go back to Italy. So then we'll go back to the whole fact that it's been time American show. I love the fact that I can go back to Sicily when I want to. I love that. If I have a job like that where I have to show up on the radio every day, I can't do that anymore. You know what I'm saying? I can only do that like two weeks a year. I don't want to be – part of the reason I made all these sacrifices in my life is just so at this point in my life I can pick up and go and do things that I want to when I want to. You know what I'm saying? It's also part of the reason I've never gotten married and done all that because I just don't feel like I want to be tied down. I like being able to pick up and go, especially to pick up and go to Italy. Last year, I fought in July, and the rest of the summer I spent in Italy. You know, I spent all the way to the end of September in Italy. So I like being able to go back, and a lot of the reasons why I don't time myself, try not to spread myself too thin, is just so I can, when the summer comes, I can, I can spend a good part of it in Sicily. It's nice having that independence, for sure. And you've definitely yeah. earned it. I mean, I get it. it. makes sense. You didn't uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. put yourself well, through all that for nothing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Plus, like I said, I mean, Sicily, is, it's fun. I mean, I've got friends there. I've got family there. It's also the culture. Uh, the beaches are great. You know, it's just, it's a cool time. It's, I made some good friends there as well, so it's cool. So it's not just I'm going there to relax. You know, I get to have fun there too. You know, my friends all know the people, the nightclubs and whatnot. So it's, you know, you get to go out. So you get to enjoy your life even uh, as a young person and not just people get trying to get away and relaxing. I get that too, but I also get to actually have fun there. So it's a, I get to enjoy the whole experience, and uh, I enjoy it, and I hope to keep doing it. All right, well, Pauli Malnyagi, thank you for coming on the Italian American podcast and spending some time with us. Pauli, we could talk to you for another hour. I mean, it's like. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do this again sometime. That'd be great. Yeah. Your story is really inspiring. It's different than, than what we've heard, and, and we'll, we'll keep in touch with you. We'll catch you for an espresso sometime. We'll come to Brooklyn. Sounds good to me. I'll talk thank to you, you so much, Pauli. Bye bye. Take care. It is now time for the Italian-American story segment of the episode. This is the part of the show where we try to bring you back to your family gatherings, conversations, and we try to play a recording or a story from one of our listeners or our own relatives or even read something that a listener submitted. In today's segment, you are going to hear me talk to Charlie Scalise, and he talks a little bit about the memories that he remembers from growing up in the very Italian-American neighborhood in Philadelphia, but he also gives a really nice story about his parents who are from Italy. Here it is. All right, and now I want to welcome Charlie Scalise to the Italian American Podcast. Charlie, welcome. Thank you. Welcome. I'm happy to be here. Charlie's an actor. He's been on some some pretty high profile shows like The Wire and The Sopranos, among other things that he's done. And Charlie, this is the story segment of our episode. So, do you have a story or an experience that you can remember about your heritage or your background that? was really important to you growing up, something that stands out? Uh, most of all, I remember I remember the parties, the family parties and the family get-togethers. One of the things that was really big back in those days, uh, on the weekends, we went and visited. We all piled in the car, and we went to visit one brother or another brother. And so my cousins and I, we all grew up together. And so the fact that we were together every weekend was probably my biggest memory. And there was a lot of, I remember a lot of noise. Uh, we talk loud, I think, which is uh, probably a disease of the Italian-American culture. 
or maybe just the Italians, and uh, we laugh a lot. So there's no one particular memory I have of those things, but I just, I remember going there all the time and, and visiting different members of the family and family. just having a friend. So, Charlie, let's fast forward a bit to your career here. Obviously, you were on some pretty high-profile shows, and you know, one of them being The Sopranos. And, you know, when we do our podcast episodes and when we do a lot of Italian-American events and stuff, there's always a lot of discussion around the whole idea of the mafia. And some people think it's, a you know, kind of a black eye on Italian-Americans. Some people think it's just a part of, you know, our heritage and experience. Obviously, The Godfather was a big, big, big success. So I'm just curious, like, what was your experience with that show as an Italian and being on the show? What were your thoughts on, on the whole experience? I had grown up around people who were purportedly in the mob. My experiences with those people was nothing but good. But then again, you know, as my dad used to say, the only people that need to worry about them are the people that need to worry about them. <laughs> right. and, that, and that wasn't us. So. So I never, I never had a negative problem with any of the people who were supposedly connected. And uh, so when I went into, when I went in and did The Sopranos, I was quite familiar with that uh, lifestyle uh, in in respect to the family style and a part of that lifestyle. Uh, you know, I even worked for so-called connected people as a, as an actor, and and it was all very very positive. But again, I didn't, I know, I wasn't connected with that dark side of it. So. I know it's there, and, uh, and you know, as an Italian-American, I wish it wasn't, but yeah. it is what it is. And uh, But nevertheless, uh, uh, working on The Sopranos, uh, I really I really enjoyed working with Jim Gandolfini, God rest his soul. He was a great guy, and he was absolutely not like Tony Soprano. Really? He was, he was, a, he was a, yeah, a very kindly man, very gentle man, extremely, extremely literate. Uh, just he was just nice to work with. Uh, it was a shame it didn't last very long. Well, it sounds like you've had a lot of success in your career. Let me ask you this question: How was your upbringing as an Italian American in that Italian neighborhood? How has that impacted your career? Oh, again, <laughs> when you're my age and you look like me, uh, which is short and round, <laughs> uh, when you get cast, you get cast as yourself. So I, I bring all of that with me to any of my any of my uh, um, my uh, work in the in the film and on TV. Uh, it just comes out when I'm speaking as Charlie Scalise. There's probably no doubt that I'm from South Philadelphia, although I haven't lived in South Philadelphia since 1956. It naturally comes out. I'm loud and I'm loquacious. Probably no surprise to anybody. So you're you're Italian. <laughs> I'm you know, and I use my hands a lot. It's, you know, my wife and I, it's funny, she's of Sicilian heritage, and I remember one time she was speaking, and I grabbed both of her hands, and she started to stammer. And, <laughs> and she looked, she gave me such a look, I instantly let go of her hands because I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> that's funny. But, you know, that's us. That, that's just us. One of the things I wanted to tell you, I guess if I had to pinpoint the greatest part of my life growing up, was around the dinner table every night there was always a debate. Always, always, always. There was never a subject we couldn't talk about, and there was never a subject that the young people couldn't pipe in and, and give their opinion. It was, it, again, it was loud, it was argumentative, and there was an awful lot of laughter. 
Uh, and I, I miss that. I really miss that. And, and again, when, when we get together with our five kids and their families, it turns out to be the same kind of thing. So I love that. I love being surrounded by loud people and people who love life. That's a great way to, to sum it up. And I think that's important because I do think that I know from my wife and our three kids, we try to make the dinner time an important part of the day and, you know, work our schedule around it so everybody can be together, everybody can talk, everybody can connect. I know that that's something that doesn't happen all the time these days with everyone's schedules and stuff. So I think that's important. I do think that that's a part of our Italian heritage that I think our parents hopefully instilled in us enough that we all, that we do try to keep it going. I don't want to call it a sin, but the biggest regret is when we all moved out of the city and went to the suburbs, and we're now separated, and uh, we're not together. I mean, back back in the day, we were together. You know, you could open up your window and yell, and somebody would answer you. It's not like that anymore. Everybody has moved away, and they've gone their separate ways, but it's great when we all get together again. It's like somebody just turned the clock back. Right, exactly. Well, Charlie, thank you for sharing some of your memories with us. We appreciate them, and I know that our listeners are going to value them because they're they're things that Dolores and I talk about quite a bit on the show. So we just appreciate your time. If I can tell you one more thing, I'm probably taking up your time. No, that's fine. Um, Go ahead. All the research that my daughter and I did, and then Chris actually went to Italy twice to, to do some more research. We knew that my mother's family was from Ischia, which is the large island off of Naples next to Capri. Yes. Uh, my mother was born in, in Philadelphia area, but when she was a year old, the family moved back to Ischia. So she spent the first 14 years of her life there. And she would tell us about it. And then she actually, after she retired, she went back and visited it and just told us stories about the beauty of the place. So Krista ultimately went back and she was actually able to uncover my grandparents' birth certificates. Wow. So we know their history. But now I, I realize this is going out over the air, so I hope I don't get arrested for saying this, but I said to Krista, please bring me back some dirt from Ischia, which, <laughs> uh, which she did. And tomorrow we are going to the cemetery, and we are going to place a little bit of that dirt at my mother's tombstone, and then we're going to the other cemetery where my maternal grandparents are, and we're going to place some there too. So I want to be able to bring you skier back to them. And I can barely say it without choking up. But I've been looking forward to this for such a long time. That's great. Someday, maybe, if not in this life, in the next life, I want to go to Ischia. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard beautiful things about it. And uh, I hope to go there as well. And I think that that's bringing that full circle is great. I had a similar experience myself because I got to go to Sicily this past summer where my great-grandmother Rosa came from, and unfortunately my grandfather had never got to go there, and he passed away this summer, but I feel like the fact that I got to go there and met her family that's still there and talked to them, it was a, you know, a circular connection. So, Yeah, obviously you speak Italian. Some conversational in the dialect, yeah, enough to get by there. <laughs> yeah, my brother and sister are older than me, and Back then, uh, my grandmother would take care of them when my mother worked, so both of them could speak Italian fluently, and I was the tail ender. I was the accent, and I came along eight years later. <laughs> so uh, my mom, I still, you know, I spent the time with my mom, so I never really learned. I, I learned some of the bad words, but not uh, I wasn't able to speak it very well. I wish I had. Maybe next time around, right? Yeah, that's right, Charlie.
Well, thank you for doing this. Like I said, I appreciate it. And we're going to publish this out, and I'll be sure to share it with you and Chris when we do. Thank you, Anthony. God bless you and your family. All right, you too, Charlie. Take care. Bye now. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today with Paulie Malignaggi, and you also enjoyed that segment with Charlie Scalise. We had a really good time talking to Paulie. It was different than a lot of our other episodes, and it was really, really interesting. All right, Dolores, why don't you take us out? All right, Anthony, we have some really great new iTunes reviews that I just want to share because they make me happy. So this one is from JG Yankees. Holla to all those Yankee fans out there. And he writes, uh, with a great five-star review, a must for all Italian-Americans. I've been looking for something like this for years. I grew up Italian-American in New Jersey, but now live away from my family. Thanks to Anthony and Dolores through the podcast, I've reconnected with and learned more about my own culture. Podcast inspired me to join NIAF, as well as other Italian-American organizations in the area. I highly recommend subscribing to their email list, where you will not only receive each new podcast, but also their thoughtful blog posts. Thank you, Dolores and Anthony. Yeah, thank you. That's awesome. A listener, Andy Cofino, who also, uh, he reaches out to us a lot. We love that. So we have a, you know, a, a back-and-forth relationship with Andy. He leaves us also, five-star review, best podcast out there. He writes, uh, interesting interviews, amazing guests, and lots of stimulating conversation about the Italian-American experience. And lastly, Mike Messiello, again, a five-star review, goldmine for anyone interested in their Italian roots and Italian-American culture. He writes that he always looks forward to new podcasts and blog posts. Besides being professionally done, the podcast covers a wonderful range of topics and first-rate and sometimes nationally known guests. Thank you so much to everyone who leaves us reviews. As you can tell, we read them and they fuel us to keep on going. Thank you. Grazie, grazie. I mean, what Dolores said is right. They definitely keep us going. I mean, the podcast is a lot of work, but we we enjoy it. And every time we get those reviews, it just makes us want to work harder and improve the show and get it out there to more people. And it's great. So definitely keep them coming. I mean, listen, Dolores and I are sitting here talking to each other and, you know, it's not live. So we can only hope that people ultimately listen. Yeah. <laughs> the reviews are like validation that like there is actually someone on the other end. That's right. And that it's <laughs> impacting your lives in, in a positive, healthy, soul-filling way. I mean, that makes the work worth it. So. All right. Lastly, you can connect with us via social media. We have a lot of fun on social media as well. So join us there if you haven't already. We are on Instagram at Italian American, on Twitter at Ital American, and we're on Facebook at Italian American Podcast. Alla prossima volta!